I could turn on one of my favorite songs and have a little dance party in the car. That's today's guest, teacher, administrator, counselor, and trauma expert, Nicole Cobb, giving us one of her coping strategies. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire, here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about today's guest. Dr. Nicole Cobb is on the faculty at Vanderbilt University and has worked in education for 25 years as a teacher, school counselor, and administrator at the district and state level. Her professional experience has allowed her to link research to practice in the field of school counseling, specifically as it relates to transforming the school counseling profession, school climate, trauma-informed practices, social-emotional learning, and college access. Governor Bill Haslam recently appointed Nicole to serve as an advisor on Tennessee's Council for Career and Technical education. Find Nicole's full bio, show notes, and resources at www.musicedinsights.com. What was the high point for you in this interview, Alan? She got real about how the ego of successful teachers can make us stand in our own way. We've seen a lot, so we can automatically assume that we know exactly what we're looking at, and we can take things personally. More importantly, we often think that we're helping when we project strength and confidence, but really, that can make us seem too perfect we're unrelatable, and it makes them feel worse. We ought to stay vulnerable instead. What about you, Steve? Well, listen all the way to the end, because even though we didn't intend to talk about music-specific concepts, uh, Dr. Cobb addressed one right in the middle and right at the very end, and I think they might surprise you. You're right about that. I also loved the way she differentiated the comfort and value of routine and predictability against being inflexible and rigid. They're different, but it's important to note that. Let's get to our conversation with Dr. Nicole Cobb. Nicole Cobb, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, we've asked you here today to help answer the question, how have our students been rewired or changed as a result of the COVID pandemic? But first, can you give us a little primer on how trauma in general can affect the human brain? Sure. So let's just take a moment and get on the same page with what is trauma. So for our talk today, let's think of trauma as an emotional response to a terrible event. So sometimes that event threatens our life. Sometimes it threatens someone close to us, or it just leaves us feeling out of control, helpless, maybe scared. And so what makes us think of the pandemic uniquely as a trauma is that it's not just one single event. In fact, it feels more like a slow moving disaster that has escalated in intensity over time, but doesn't have a clear beginning or end point. And you ask about the brain. So um, I'm gonna geek out on you for a minute about our brains because they're truly amazing. They control who we are, how we react, how we think, our personalities. But when we think about COVID, and trauma, there's three specific areas of the brain that are impacted. And the first is called the amygdala. The amygdala's job is to help control our emotions, our survival instincts, our memory. It's responsible for fight or flight response. So I like to think of the amygdala as the smoke detector in your kitchen. Is the kitchen on fire or is the pizza just burning in the oven? For someone who has experienced um, trauma, 
This amygdala is hyperactive. It has no idea if it's a real threat or a perceived threat. And so then the second part of our brain that comes into play is called the hippocampus. And this is what um, in our brain helps us learn in school. So when you're getting new challenging material, it's what allows us to process that, remember, retain the information. If you've had a series of traumas, they're hormones that are released. We think in the research, this makes our hippocampus actually smaller in size and then obviously impacts our ability to engage um, when we think of our students with that course material. And then the next part of the brain is what we call the prefrontal cortex. This is all about regulating our emotions, the higher order parts of our brain. And so the prefrontal cortex talks to our amygdala and, and someone that hasn't experienced trauma, it says, you know what, the kitchen's not on fire. You just walked out of the room and there's smoke everywhere. But if all of this is out of balance, if all the chemicals are out of place, then a young person or even adult, they can't figure out what's real, what's not. And so they either fight, flight, or you might even see a freeze response. And we watch this response in the other person, and it might just make no sense to us as we watch it, but it makes perfect sense to the person who's going through that response. Well, I definitely think you're right and that it makes no sense to us. Like, we certainly think, why is this student behaving this way in class? But what I think is interesting is that sometimes our students or humans in general, they don't even know their brain is out of sorts. So if you were to ask this student, do you feel like COVID has been traumatic for you and your family? They might say, no, I'm good. You know, have you talked to a teenager lately? I'm fine. Nothing. Everything's good. They may not know, but we as adults need to recognize that, wait, this probably isn't I don't care. This is probably some sort of imbalance of the chemical hormones in the brain. So what types of things are we seeing now with the COVID pandemic in particular that we're in, into it here a couple of years? We got some research, some real data coming in. What are you starting to see? So just recently, the CDC released some really interesting data on young people and mental health. I'm sure this won't surprise you or your listeners that our students are really having increased rates of poor mental health. So out of the students surveyed in the U.S., over 37% say that they feel sad or hopeless. They reported intense anxiety. We've even had large increases in suicidal ideation and self-harming, as well as just other behaviors seem to be like left unchecked. Rates of physical and emotional abuse at home is up. Domestic violence is up. Bullying and cyberbullying is up. So just like we talked about trauma, these mental health issues impact the brain's chemistry and function in a similar way. So in your brain, you have these things called neurotransmitters. They're the chemical messengers of the brain. And I bet you're familiar with some of those things like serotonin, dopamine, adrenaline, oxytocin. And so when we have really intense stress or even what one might define as trauma, mental health issues, these things get out of balance. And so 
again, like we talked about earlier, we have trouble learning and retaining information. But what I think teachers are seeing the most is this inability to regulate emotion. So it could look like total disengagement. It could also look like a student losing their mind in class. You know, have you ever been like outside on the sidewalk greeting students in the morning and you're saying, good morning, hey, how are you? And like some kid just yells at you, curses you. And you're like, what happened? That kid went from zero to 10 in two seconds. Well, what we know from this trauma and mental health research is that in a lot of our schools, students are walking in at a six. So what seems really benign or like nothing to us really sends that student over the edge. And I think it's really easy as adults or as teachers to let our ego kind of get in and take it personally when really that's not how we should be taking it all. We should really think about, well, what are those things that I could do to have a little more grace and patience with these students that I'm working with during these difficult times? I'd like to revisit the specifics, some suggestions you have for teachers in a bit, but with the data that you were talking about and this fictional student entering in at a six, are you noticing differences in age groups? Because we have some listeners who are primarily teaching elementary, general music, some who teach middle school, some who teach high school. Are you seeing this across the board or is it more acute for some age groups or playing out differently in perhaps different grade levels? So I definitely think there's similarities across age levels. But you know, as with anything, students are developmentally different through the different stages. And so with the younger students, they have trouble labeling the emotion or really being able to articulate what's wrong. Where as students get older, they still have trouble regulating their emotions. And so, you know, again, you could see it as total disengagement. You could see it as the class clown. And you could see it as a very aggressive student. Now, with the older students, if you can try to get them to regulate and have a calm one-on-one -on -one talk, they're probably going to be more apt to start labeling what's going on, maybe what's going on at home, and you'll feel like you can start to put a plan in place. But we're really seeing this across the board. And I, I should note that a lot of our business and industry partners are seeing similar things with adults in the workplace as we all are trying to re-enter the world post-pandemic. The why is probably a, a subject for a different podcast or a different episode. But like, real quick, do we think it's the students just not having exposure, being around other students, uh, being with family too much? Do we have any guesses as to the underlying cause or some of the main underlying causes of this? Fear for their own safety, or is it just all of it all combined? Well, you know, I think that one thing that's important to think about is, let's say, pre-pandemic. Those students and families that were really struggling pre-pandemic we know they were impacted at greater rates. So think about marginalized populations, folks that were already suffering financially or with their health, things have become worse. And so often with this, because there has been this long-term stress, it's not just COVID stress, 
resiliency and coping skills might have already been minimal, and then this happens. Where some of our more resourced families or students, if they had a really solid base, if home life was stable, if they were getting good grades in school, if they really enjoyed school, then they just have a larger toolbox of resiliency and coping skills, which is making it a little easier to cope now. I do think it's important for listeners to to just kind of note in their head, trauma exposure does not equal a trauma reaction. And so that can be what makes this a little bit hard too, because you and I could have the exact same thing happen to us and we react very differently. And it's not that one of our reactions is right or wrong. It's just all of our past lived experiences. Our brain chemistry is going to impact if we feel like it's a traumatic event or if we feel like it's just a little bump in the road and we can easily move over it. Because of this dual situation where some students may have come into COVID with some trouble already with efficacy and the self-efficacy and coping skills, as well as what you just said, trauma exposure does not necessarily equal a trauma reaction. We know teachers who will look at their students and say, 30, 40% of them seem to be just fine. And some of those kids are poor. Some of those kids have some trouble already. And they're doing just fine. And then there's these other kids. Some of them came pretty well equipped pre-COVID. At least they seem that way. And they're having trouble. This is just an excuse for them to be less accountable, take it easy. They got too used to how cushy it was. And it's time for them to get back in gear. Because, yeah, I can understand some of them. But all of them, nah, can't be real. Well, you know, if we did know how to sort that out, that's the million-dollar question. And, you know, I wish we did. The thing that, you know, I just tell teachers all the time is that we just have to remember that everyone we encounter is probably going through something, even if it's not visible. And just because to you, I have a smile on my face, I'm doing my homework, I'm not acting out, I'm behaving in what you consider appropriate in your class, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm good. I could be home cutting. I could be not sleeping well. I could be really hateful to my younger siblings or my parents. um, And I just know how to kind of disappear at school. And, you know, actually, sometimes I think those students that are really reacting and, and make us all really exhausted at the end of the day, at least we can start to see you know, what's going on. And then we can start to have these conversations around what do they need. And I certainly am not advocating that we do not hold students accountable for their behaviors, for their work. But what I do advocate for is are there ways as educators, we can maybe change up our approaches to be more trauma informed. For example, instead of immediately saying like, Nicole doesn't care. She's not doing her work. She doesn't pay attention in class. Maybe I could shift my story in my head, my talk to say, what's going on with Nicole? Maybe I need to get with the school counselor. We need to sit down, have a chat about this where I'm honest. And I say like, your behavior is not acceptable. This is not okay. But tell me what's going on with you. So some of the teachers that we work with and, and that we help professionally are band and choir and orchestra directors. 
with 80 to 120 students and they'll hear what you just said and say, <laughs> I got 40 to 50 kids where I don't know what the heck's going on with them. And I don't have time to do that one-on-one -on -one, what's going on with Nicole with every single one of them. Something else needs to be done here. Uh, what, what would you say to, to those frustrated, burned out teachers? Yeah. So, I mean, that's hard. Large class sizes are really hard. Um, so I can share with you one thing I've been doing with some of my larger classes um, is that part of this is, is how you're coming across, right? So, so everyone listening, we may know that with what I'm about to tell you to do, you're not going to be able to like follow up with every student. But what we're trying to do is send a message to students that I care about you and I care about you as a human, not just your, your academic performance performance in this chorus class, band class, English class. So often I'll start class and just say, everybody between one and five, hold up a finger of how your day's going. One is lousy and five is the best day ever. And you give them a second to do that. And then you just say, thank you for sharing. Looks like we have a mix of what's going on in the room. I hope the activity that we're having today will you know, help those of you having a lousy day, have a little reprieve from that. And those of you having really good days, it just makes it better. And then move into your content. Another strategy that I like to do, especially classes that are like after lunch or if there's been a chaotic time in the school day, is just to start class with a little breathing exercise. So get everybody settled down and say, okay, everybody put your feet on the floor, ground them down. We're gonna do some quick breath work to get our brains ready to engage in this. So I like a technique called square breathing. If you want, we could do it real quickly together. And so what you do is breathe in through your nose at count of four, one, two, three, four, hold, one, two, three, four, Exhale, one, two, three, four, hold, one, two, three, four. If you're a teacher and want to take that a little step further, you could have them inhale a word that would be important in, in your class or, or feel good. Exhale something like frustration, distraction, something like that. But doing that even one time, but if you'd had them do that three times at the beginning of your class, it takes under two minutes. And we actually have brain research that shows that regulates, calms the central nervous system, and better equips students to be ready to engage. By no means does that mean you're not going to have a behavior problem in your class, but it does seem to help students feel like you actually care about them outside of, of that you know, 60, 90 minute class period. And Nicole, I have great news for you that as far as uh, teachers who instruct singing or wind instrument playing, this idea of breathing exercise is one of those things and alignment, body alignment and breathing that falls into the category of, yeah, I know I should probably be doing more of this at the beginning of my class, but I just need to get right into the stuff. And this is a good sort of incentive 
for our teachers who know they kind of need to be doing some of those breathing exercises anyway to know it's going to have the double benefit of also maybe helping with the mental side of things with the students as well. And just as I was going through those exercises with you right now, thinking as a teacher, it would kind of help ground me as well. And that leads me to the next thing I wanted to ask, which is the teachers. And back to something you said earlier, where those of us who entered the pandemic with a lot of tools in the toolbox to be able to manage, we maybe came out on the other side a little better off. And I think that is something that the media and blog posts, we've talked about a lot as it pertains to physical assets like money and housing and a job and things like that. And basically, if you were in good shape and COVID hit, you probably emerged on the other side a little bit better off. But boy, if you went into COVID without a job or without money or with with housing insecurity, then it was really bad news. I think the idea of being prepared mentally to deal with challenges I think that did not get or does not get nearly as much attention. And in particular, when we're talking about our teachers, they have job security. Right now, if you're a teacher, you got all the job security you want because there's open teaching positions everywhere. So you feel like as a teacher, I've got the job security. I've got housing stability. I've got money. I've got health insurance. I can go to the doctor if I need to. But it's still possible that they are facing some unprecedented challenges as well. Are you noticing that? I know the data we've talked about so far has been student-centered, but what are what are your thoughts or what are you noticing as far as the teachers who maybe you say, hey, Alan, how's everything going? And Alan says, oh, fine. And Alan might even think it's fine, but really it's not fine. Right. I mean, what we're seeing in the data is that teacher burnout is at an all-time high. Um, you know, for, for so many of us that are educators, we're dealing with our own families at home, our own stressors at home. You know, maybe you have young children, maybe you're taking care of elderly parents. So although you have job security, you're not, you know, going to a quiet place every day and listening to your music and, you know, not having any stress. You've got to be on and these students are challenging us in ways Um, that maybe they never have before on all number um, of levels. And so one thing I like to focus on, and I know we throw around self-care a lot, um, but this idea of wellness and taking care of you, sort of that idea, I'm sure you've heard it, you know, um, the pulling down the air mask, you know, if you don't put yours on first, you're not much help to the person next to you. And You know, I don't know if any of your listeners are like me, but I fall into this trap of like, if I don't have an hour to go for a run, hit the yoga class, then, well, today there's no self-care. This week, there's no self-care. Maybe I'll hit it next time. Where what we really know from the research is we don't have to have an hour. You know, instead of returning phone calls on my commute to work, I could listen to a great podcast that leaves me uplifted. I could, you know, turn on one of my favorite songs and have a little dance party in the car as I'm headed to work. You know, those little things that are three minutes, 15 minutes, they do a lot to regulate your brain chemistry, keep you calm and regulated. And that's self-care. So yeah, it's great if you can get outside and be active. It's great if you can sit down and read a book for an hour. Um, But I just hope the folks listening won't write it off if that 
Is it what works for their life today? So big question. Do you think we might ever get back to the normal of 2019 in regards to students, how they are, their brains have been rewired? Or are we, is this the new normal for the foreseeable future? Well, I think, I think we might have to say this is the new normal. Um, but what I would encourage us to, to maybe shift our thinking and view it as is, you know, out of the last two years, what are those silver linings? What have we learned that we don't want to lose? We don't want to go back to. So like, maybe for example, you don't want to spend 24 seven with your family anymore and your kids. But having game night once a week really was fun and you enjoyed laughing with your kids and taking that pause. So how do you keep like those moments of joy and connection as we go um, to the new normal? And then the other thing that we do know that I feel like is really hopeful is that our brains have plasticity, which means they're capable of changing in responses to experiences. And what really helps, again, keep your brain in balance is doing repetitive patterned things. Routine is really helpful for most individuals. And that routine doesn't mean it has to be rigid, but we like to kind of know somewhat what's coming. Um, so again, thinking about strategies like mindfulness, and some people might, you know, interpret that to be meditation. That's great, but it doesn't have to be. It could mean you just sit down to eat a meal instead of eating on the run and rushing out the door. It can mean, you know, as you're sitting, you know, grading papers or writing your newsletter, or your lesson plan to say, I'm going to work on this 10 more minutes and then I'm just going to get up and do a few stretches or walk around, just not sit for, you know, hours upon hours. Um, that we'll start to pay attention to our breath. I mean, most of us are breathing really shallow chest breath. And we may not even realize it's a problem, but it keeps us kind of geared up. So can you just stop? And while you're grading those papers, writing that lesson plan, put your hand on your belly, make sure your belly's rising and falling with your breath to deepen it. Um, and teaching our students these skills. Um, as we're learning, we want to teach our students. And I think there's a lot to be said for sharing our vulnerabilities with our students. So students often tell me that they think everything's great for their teachers, that it's always fine. And I think that's because we have this mentality of the show must go on. We're going to be great actors. We're going to hide it. We're going to be there for our students. We're going to be strong. But the research would show that it actually helps students and ourselves to show vulnerability. You know, we want to have boundaries and we don't want to tell students all our business. But to say, I'm having a really hard day today. You know, I, it's, I'm going to have to have a little extra oomph to get through this class period. That's okay. And, you know, as we're having these discussions with our class, we can start to teach them some of the strategies that we're using in our own um, wellness and self-care routines and practice it with them. Um, and that's why I also think it's so important to do those little things at the beginning of class. And I can tell you, 
the times I haven't, the times like in my head, I'm just going in, I'm behind on my standards, I've got to hit it. Something happens later in class behavior wise that I have to address and I lose that time that I thought I was gaining. So you talked about how being a great actor might inadvertently sometimes portray a, a false message to the students that we've got it all together. We don't have some of the same struggles. Are there any other kind of common things you've noticed, ways that classroom teachers might inadvertently not help or even even cause trauma for, for some students? Yeah, well, I think of that in, in kind of two different ways. So one our language, how we talk to students can sometimes be traumatizing. So, you know, for example, you have a student that did poorly on a quiz. You know, Steve, I can't believe you did so poorly on this quiz. I thought you were smarter than that. Wow, that can take you back. Um, or were you just playing last night? You didn't even have time to do your homework? Must be nice, you know whatever, doing video games. Well, you know, what if that student was taking care of younger siblings or their parents couldn't pay the bill, they didn't have electricity and they can't do their homework in the dark. So we really have to watch how we hold our students accountable and what that language looks like. And then in a broader context, I think about, you know, systemic traumas around racism and things like that. And as teachers, are we rethinking our curriculum and our course materials to really bring in music for, for most of your educators listening, readings, activities um, that really highlight and celebrate the lived experiences of the students that are in our classroom? So, you know, only you know what's right for your students and your community, but you know, I, I hope I'm not the only one. Sometimes I get caught up in, well, every September I teach this unit and I always do this reading and this activity and this, you know, project-based learning thing um, where maybe I need to pause and say, okay, is this what's good for Nicole? Or is this what's great for these students that are sitting with me today? And where could I do a few tweaks or adjustments to help them feel more connected and engaged with the curriculum? and with me as their teacher. One thing Alan and I have loved about this podcast, we've been uh, interviewing people for about a year now, is it hasn't mattered. Every episode, it has gone into a little direction that we just didn't expect. And I would not have expected that with you and the, your area of expertise, that we would conclude the discussion by talking about programming. Whether you know it or not, you just left the listeners with a, hey, here's someone who is not a music education expert telling you, you got to pay attention to your programming. What literature you select for your students to, to learn and to perform is a big, big deal. This is becoming the uh, center square in our, our podcast bingo card. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Nicole Cobb, thank you for joining us today to share your insight on these important topics. Uh, can we finish up with the lightning round on some lighter topics? I'd love it. What is the best place to eat in Nashville, Tennessee? Husk. Husk. What kind of food? Comfort, Southern food, and, and kind of little fine dining. Come visit. I'll take you. Deal. Favorite children's book? Oh, goodness. That's hard. Um, where the wild things are. 
best karaoke song or the song you love to sing when you're having a dance party in the car? How about I love rock and roll? Little Joan Jett. Nice. Yeah, love some Joan Jett. I'm old school. <laughs> what is your favorite vacation you've taken or the dream vacation you want to take? Right before COVID, I had the opportunity to go to Fiji and it was everything you might think it is. And then in two weeks, I'm headed to Portugal. So I am counting down the days. I'm very jealous. And finally, a book recommendation that doesn't have anything to do with trauma, counseling, or teaching. Well, I do love to read. So one of my favorite books that I recently read was All the Light We Cannot See. It really stayed with me over time. And right now I'm reading Sapiens um, for nonfiction and um, a book called Memphis just for fun. So. Well, Nicole Cobb, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you coming. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Um, and thanks, everybody, for listening. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musicedinsights.com insights.com this podcast is sponsored and supported by normal design winterset websites group dynamic and the co-college music education program learn more about them at our website and let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list new episodes drop every two weeks on monday mornings get current stay relevant music ed insights